0: Uh, well, good day, everyone. Um, I'm Andres. Uh, for those who uh, don't know me or haven't met me, and uh, one of the elders here at Grace International. And I'd, I'd like to add my uh, welcome uh, to our pastor, Andis uh, today. Um, as, as, uh, as you may hear um, from my voice, uh, it, it is, uh, I have lost it. I am regaining it. Uh, but uh, hopefully um, it will add that Godfather-like aspect to the sermon. So you've got to listen to God's Word here. Um, And and if not, uh, my wife, after two months, is returning uh, on Tuesday, and they say a silent listening husband is really good, so it will probably be good for that. Hopefully you also have your Bible uh, with you so you can uh, look, look, look at the passage as I preach uh, to make sure that uh, what I'm saying is God's word. Um, uh, also, uh, we're hitting some really uh, tough themes today. Uh, we're going to be talking about money, we're going to be talking about public disgrace and office politics. Uh, so how can that ever go wrong? Uh, but <laughs> what it does mean is, uh, is uh, we're going to have to work hard uh, in, uh, together in this passage as well. Um, and uh, as uh, I'd also like to thank Viya uh, for reading the passage so so beautifully. Um, as as she was reading, I did I did hear that the, the uh, was reminded of the, the frequent illnesses. As half the congregation is gone, maybe Andy, we need more wine. I don't know. We'll, 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 get, we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. Um, but uh, yeah, in in the there is half of us gone. Uh, hopefully, it's not because uh, I was on the preaching roster for today. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into 1 Timothy. So it's a letter to a young pastor in church, in a church previously um, started up and, and, and pastored by Paul himself. Um, we've heard about the struggles, about legalism. We've heard about a lot of practical guidance in how to run a church. And today, as I said, we're going to look at money, public disgrace, and, and uh, office politics. But before we start... Uh, talking about leadership and, uh, and uh, problems, I have a confession. Uh, my confession is, is, in my private time, I like to go on Quora. I don't know if anyone else is a Quora addict here. Um, uh, if you don't know what Quora is, it's basically this social media platform where people pose a question. Uh, sometimes it's a real question, sometimes it's for propaganda purposes, and then someone answers the question and then there are tons of comments afterwards, and that's where it really gets lively. Now, recently I was reading a question, and, uh, and it was basically about what was happening in Iran uh, with the hijab revolution. And someone explained, uh, you know, how these brave women are going against the authorities and what was happening. And then someone in the comments threw the, threw the grenade in there and said, well, you know, the problem is the Sunnis and the Shias, and the problem is Muhammad. And you know, he had several wives and concubines and he, he killed people and practiced genocide himself. And then some Muslim comes back and says, well, the Christians aren't any better. You've got the Catholics and the Protestants and they've been fighting and killing each other for centuries and the Christians are just as bad. Now, with my fingers poised on the keyboard, and I've got to admit, I don't actually put anything on there because I know it's not going to end well. But how would you answer this point? Someone is saying, well, the Christians have been fighting and killing each other. What What would you answer? How would you answer that? Well, you could say that Jesus is different. He, along with the Bible, preaches equality. Equality of the genders. Equality of people. He preaches that equality um, uh, in in uh, society's structures. He never lifted a hand in anger. In fact, Jesus tells us that we should pray for our enemies we should pray for our governments and he even went like a lamb to a slaughter innocent to the cross he's an amazing historical figure and I haven't even talked about his deity or his miracles however Jesus' church does have a lot to answer for now we can excuse some things so for instance the Spanish Inquisition which I looked up uh, killed about 32,000 people, which sounds like a lot, but that was over a 200-year period. The Crusades, realistically, wasn't a religious war. There it was, it, it was mixed motivations, and, and it wasn't so simple. And when you see uh, in America those people holding those placards, uh, God hates fags, well, actually, it's a small church which has less than 50 members, but they get a lot of airtime. But, these things are a stain on our church. And they are a stain which take away the focus from Jesus. And so if anyone is here that is new or visiting, that has experienced injustice or pain in the church, I truly apologise for the hurt and pain caused. Because sometimes the church takes away the focus from Jesus. These things stop people from seeing the marvellous gospel. How we behave as a church influences Jesus' reputation. And he is the real reason we're here. He is the one that gives us forgiveness. He is the one that takes away the shame and the pain of those things that we are all embarrassed deep in our hearts about. So what we do in our lives, in our universities, in our workplaces, in our families and with our friends, matters. How we treat each other on a Sunday, during the week, it matters. People will judge Jesus by how we act. And so Paul draws the attention to this section in the importance of how we should conduct each other. Now, for those that were here last week, uh, you might remember that Jenny said the key passage for this section is 1 Timothy 3.15. Let me read it. If I am delayed you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Last week we saw how the church is a a family, where we look after widows, where we look after the elderly, where older ladies are worthy of honour. And this week we will see how our leadership, generally older men, are also... Worthy of honour. Why? Because how we behave impacts on Jesus' reputation. Let's start. Verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox, while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. What exactly this double honour is, is not really, not really clear. It could be respect that we should have for our church leaders. It could be regularly keeping our church leaders in prayer. It could be that we make sure that we pay them so that they can devote their free time to actually ministering and teaching the word. So that in the case of Madara, not that she ever would do that, she doesn't have to go home and and absolutely give it to Andis of, my goodness, we should go back to the uh, mother church uh, across the river where our income was secure. We want them to be able to uh, do their job and preach the word. You see, as much as we may think that Undus has it great and only works three to four hours on a Sunday, <coughs> Paul describes the work as an ox. He quotes Jesus, who describes the work as a farmer. It is a tiring job with people, worrying about all of us, praying for us, chasing us, and more importantly, feeding us each week with God's word. Now, this bit is also a little bit difficult to preach on. You see, this passage is talking about paying for the minister. And this passage is difficult for three reasons. Firstly, at least I come from a society that doesn't like to talk about money. So it's difficult talking about money. But here it is in the passage. Secondly, there are some (coughs) churches that talk about money every week. And every week you'll hear how you should open up your wallet and put it out and give it to to the minister. And so I would hate for someone you are visiting to think that we're like one of those churches that are always preaching only about money. So this bit is really for our members and our regulars. And the third reason it's a little bit difficult is that with our previous minister, Malcolm, all of his wages were paid for uh, through England, whereas now we have to take the responsibility uh, for Undis to not just cover our expenses, uh, but also cover Undis' wages. However, there is a benefit to preaching systematically through the books of the Bible. Talking about money isn't there every week, even though Jesus does talk about money a lot and does talk about the fact that sometimes money is the last place that we give to God. But here it is in 1 Timothy, so if we think that usually, uh, barring sicknesses, there's 40 or 50 of us, budgeting doesn't have to be exorbitant uh, for us to, care, uh, to be able to look at this part of the Bible. Why? Because when outsiders look at us and look at how we treat us, they will judge Jesus. So is an undisabled to live in a society with, with his family? Is he struggling? Is he having to take on extra jobs uh, to pay for things? Or is it the other extreme that we see in some churches? Does Anders turn up with his uh, Lamborghini and flashy Gucci glasses and Armani suit? (laughs) The world will see how we behave, and when we behave poorly, it stops them from seeing Jesus. So this passage is reminding us of our responsibility of taking care of our pastor. But how much should I give, you may ask? Well, in Old Testament times, a tithe, 10%, was a good start for giving. And many modern Christians use that as a bit of a guideline as well. But in Old Testament times, there was also free will and sin offerings. There was the temple tax. You'd also leave the edges of the field for poor uh, poor people. So one commentator, Kent Hughes, said that in Old Testament times, in fact, the giving that the Bible said was between 30 and 40% of your income. Now, if you're a visitor, again, this is not for you. You can still tune out for a couple of minutes. This is for the regulars and the members. So what should we give? The Bible says that we should be generous. Are you generous? Now, not just at Grace International, are you generous to give to other mission organisations? Are you generous to look after those who are struggling in church? Are you generous with what you have, with your time and with your money? For some of us, it might mean cutting back a couple of coffees or maybe taking a cheaper holiday. But the question is, Are we looking after our pastor so that he can be focused on the ministry of the word? Take some time tonight to think about that. As i said, the images in this passage exemplify that being a minister is hard. But what what makes it really hard to be a minister is how we, as a congregation, treat him. Now, I like to joke sometimes that I have the gift of criticism, and that it's a Latvian superpower. <laughs> <laughs> but in churches where everyone keeps giving suggestions to the pastor, it can be tiring. <coughs> it can wear the minister down. So, before you say, Andy, why don't you start up such and such a ministry? Think about can you do that? Before you say, Andy, you're not looking after such and such a group in church. Are you looking after that group before you say look i think you should have more people over to your house are you having people over your house however if there are real issues if the minister or the leadership is not doing what they should do paul does not shy away or say sweep it under the carpet paul tells timothy to deal with it in the proper way (coughs) So we are taught to take care of our ministers financially, not to run false or insignificant charges all the time, but we are also taught to not take impurity in our leadership. Now we see this reflected in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, 15-17. Let me read it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So we get some principles out of this. Firstly... You need to point out the fault for the benefit of the other person. Check yourself. Don't just point something out because you feel like, oh, that upset me. Think about the other person. Secondly, it starts with just the two of you. Don't go about complaining or whinging to anyone else that will listen. Oh, do you know what happened at church? Let me tell you. Oh, my goodness. If they don't listen... Ask one or two mature Christians who are witnesses to go with you to adjudicate so that they can see, is it a real accusation or put the accusation in place? And finally, Jesus says, go as a church. Remember, the process is about bringing back the lost sheep, not to bully someone into believing your opinion. Last week, we saw how Paul in 1 Timothy Here's the first step. So in chapter 5, verse 1, we had: Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So the first step is, if there is some issue, come to the leadership as your father. With respect, with care, quietly between the two of you. Now we see the next step echoed in 1 Timothy, verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to approve before everyone so that others may take warning. So just as we need to be protective of our leaders, we should never approve of their public sin. Be slow and patient in taking offence, just as God is slow to anger and patient with us. Remember to be cautious in rebuking or disciplining an older man. Note also the need for two or three witnesses. Just because my good friend uh, Robert here comes to me with an accusation, we need to wait for two or three witnesses. If the leader is guilty, the witnesses will come. Now, as I was preparing the sermon, I was hit by the fact that Anders asked me to talk about leadership in chapter 3, and now he's talking about rebuking. I don't know, should I be worried about something? Anyway, (coughs) Anders didn't answer, okay. What we don't want to do, though, is quietly pay them off or quietly get the leader to move on, because there is neither justice and no one else will take warning from the rebuke. So Paul and Jesus alike call us to be patient. But when more evidence comes, and it will come, the rebuke should also be public and open for the benefit of the one sinning as well as the benefit of protecting the church and its members. Now the Catholic church, for instance, is blamed less for the existence of pedophiles and a lot more for publicly not denouncing it straight away, but rather hiding it, protecting those people, not caring for the victims, nor, he- nor bringing heavy fear on others so that they also may not do the same thing. I remember an Anglican uh, church in Australia where the minister had several witnesses that observed an inappropriate behaviour with a female member. The archbishop, came in after the couple of witnesses and made a public rebuke. He disciplined the perpetrator, even though he still cared for him. He worked hard at caring for the victims. And the whole issue was dealt with faster than if the perpetrator had been protected, moved simply to another diocese and the victims told to keep quiet. We all need to be protecting God's holy name And how we treat our leaders in everyday life, and how we treat our leaders who are sinning in gross ways, is seen by the world. Mm -hmm. So why two or three witnesses? Why be patient when there's some clear evidence? I mean like, Robert, you know, I, I know him, he's my friend, that should be enough. The problem is, it's easy for a single person or for a married couple to get riled up with an issue. And then it's off. I remember when I was working as a teacher uh, in Wagga, which is a town halfway between Sydney and Melbourne, sort of in the middle, middle of the country, Australia. And there was another town about an hour's drive away where there was a teacher uh, who had inappropriately befriended two schoolgirls. Now, the town went to bat for the girls. They wouldn't serve him at the supermarket. They wouldn't serve him at the pub. People would spit on him in the street or walk to the other side. He was ostracised to deal with his sin. It led to, unfortunately, this man committing suicide. It would seem justice had been done. However, after his death, the girls came out and said it was all a joke because he'd just been giving them too much homework. False accusations can destroy lives. So Jesus gave us the procedure to care for everyone, be patient and wait for witnesses. But if there is something serious in our leadership, how should we proceed? First, talk to the elder about it as a parent, privately seeking their point of view. If you love them, and the rebuke is for them, take the effort to approach them with love, firstly examining yourself. And ask yourself, is the issue important for the gospel? If it's about setup or how we have the chairs, about music, about where the coats should be, about all the peripheral stuff, it's not a gospel issue. And when you approach the leader be sure to hear him out and listen. I had a friend who was an assistant minister in a university church in Australia, and he had the thankless task of approaching the minister who was in an adulterous affair at at, at, uh, the university church. There was a public rebuke. The minister publicly repented, stepped down from his position, Although he was excluded from paid ministry, God has shown uh, grace in his life and he's still a believer. The church took a long time to recover, but recover it did. Jesus' was church-, Jesus's church was protected as much as it could be in this situation. And church members were clearly communicated that this behaviour was not right. That, and the public was shown that the church takes Jesus' name seriously. Now, if the minister doesn't listen, next, the two or three witnesses. Not an angry mob. Don't go gossiping, as I said. Don't keep telling anyone that will listen. Approach face to face. Do it with gentleness and respect, not with the arrogance of youth. Because the number one killer of the people in ministry is their own congregation. Let's encourage our minister, not squeeze the life out of him. If he is continuing in serious sin, pray that he too, like the minister in Australia, can come back to Jesus, repentant and seeking Jesus' grace. Verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. There is no favoritism based on gender or culture or language, based on how cool you are or how cool the minister is, based on what your career is, how rich or well off you are. There is no favoritism if you're poor or a student or an intern, there is no favoritism shown for close friends or relatives. As we pray, our Father, hallowed be your name, we are all called to honor our pastor, both financially and in reputation. And if we want to make an accusation or if our pastor sins publicly, there is no favoritism to him as well. We need to do it right So pray for the purity of your leaders, help them, care for them, protect them for the sake of our dear Christ. And so be careful in who you put in leadership. Paul realises that it can be hard to care for the needs of your ministers. We already met the context of of the poor ministers at Ephesus Maybe the congregation there was not wanting to put anything in the the pot for fear of a few legalistic ministers around. And so he ensures Timothy understands, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions with partiality. Paul realises that it can be hard to publicly discipline a minister. Paul probably knew these elders at Ephesus. Paul knew Timothy was probably good friends with some of these elders and some of these legalists. It is hard to discipline your friend. So Paul writes, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions. The only other time Paul uses such strong faith is in 2 Timothy 4, chapter, one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. when he stresses the need for Timothy to preach in season and out of season to correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul puts great value in preaching God's word and the purity and the care of its leadership. But surely Timothy could just find another leader to fill the gaps in the roster. Verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We talked about this before in chapter 3. Putting the right people in leadership is important. The purity of leaders is important. Paul already warned Timothy of some of the legalists who are making rules about what you can't eat or drink and what you can't do. I've seen churches where the wrong appointments. Has divided the congregation and created a terrible reputation. But the laying on of hands, the creation of leaders, is important. Don't wait for Jesus to apply for the leadership position and then even question whether Jesus is good enough. But the warning is if placing someone in leadership, either as an elder or a minister, you share in any of the sins that they commit. But where do you start? Start with your own purity. Because it will be a lot harder to find a good minister in a church that brings disrepute to Jesus' name, or runs its ministers into the ground by not caring for them, or is legalistic. Paul reminds us, and Paul reminds Timothy, that purity is important, not rules. And so he gives Timothy an example. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Drinking's not an issue, but excessive drinking is. <clears throat> drinking is not wrong, but if one of your brothers struggles with drinking, abstain for them. We heard in chapter 1, and we'll see again in chapter 6, how some of the church is legalistic. Maybe Timothy was following one of their rules because he wanted to win them over. Maybe Timothy was following their rules because they were his friends. However, remember, Jesus gives us principles, not rules to live by. Don't create rules that aren't in the Bible. Don't create rules over alcohol or smoking or dancing or even, dare I say, tattoos. Your purity is not obtained through a bunch of rules. Your salvation was bought on the cross. And so Paul shows his care for Timothy, both for his spiritual health, don't make up rules, and his physical health. Watch out for your stomach and be careful about yourself. Verse 24. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment and ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Purity is much more important than following man made rules. Be careful to judge people by the fruits of their actions. At Grace International, we sometimes get people coming through that look like they'll be amazing leaders, but with time, the fruits of their life speak something different. Sometimes we get others that come in and don't look flashy at all. But the fruits in their lives attest to wonderful purity and love of God. We may not notice the sins in someone's life or the great deeds in someone's life straight away, but be patient when placing people in leadership. Remember friends, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation but a single moment to destroy it all. Don't let your behaviour or that of your minister bring disrepute to Jesus's name. And don't let the absence of honouring our pastor also bring disrepute to Grace International and, more importantly, to Jesus. So leadership is deserving of honour and our protection Because how our leaders act and how we treat them will be obvious to visitors. But they should also be held to account for their purity. And Jesus taught us how to do that. We are told to respect our elders, our widows. We're told to respect each other in church. But where else in church life should we take note of our purity and respect? Well, the next section in chapter six also concerns us. Now, my last uh, couple of years working uh, in a school in Australia were really hard for a variety of reasons which I won't go into. It was difficult to go to work each day. It was difficult to keep honouring God's name when I was suffering at work. You see, I had a couple of years left in the mortgage And I was scared that if I left the job, I wouldn't be able to pay that and look after my family and still get everything right. You could say, in some ways, I was yoked like an ox to my job. I had physical and psychological traumas from my work. But I still had to go. My boss hadn't caught me and put me in chains. But you see, the the people in Rome were very similar to this. About a third of the people in Rome were in some form of servitude, you might call them slaves, but they were really, it was a slave to a debt or a slave to a contract that they had to pay off. So if you have to work, or if you will have to work for your, uh, after your studies, in some way you could say, you too are yoked to your work, then this section's also for you. Now, slavery, as I mentioned, is not the kind of slavery that, is, uh, to, uh, that we see in American films with chains and people in the Caribbean and the Deep South. That's dealt with elsewhere in the Bible. But although this is not a direct one-to-one fit, let's look for the principles that are there for all of us. So, chapter 6. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Why? So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who are believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. So what were the temptations of work for me when I was working in a hard workplace? Now first, some of my bosses weren't Christian. So it was easy for me to think, well, look, they're not worthy of my respect. They're not Christian. But Paul tells us that we need to respect our masters wherever they are from. The world sees constant whinging or constant whining about our earthly masters. Be they bosses, or be they our lecturers. Unless it's standing up for the purity of God's word, or there is a misunderstanding, we should not hear the phrase at work or at university, how could you do that? Aren't you Christian? Second, some of my bosses at work were actually Christians. So I could easily be tempted to think, look, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, They'll forgive me. Look, I'll just take it easy. They will need to forgive me. Now, a friend of mine who was a Christian lecturer at a university would sometimes have students come who are Christians and from the same church and ask for special exemptions. Paul speaks to this as well. We need to respect our Christian masters even more. Even if Their management style does not reflect their faith. Even if they are uncaring and self-centred or bad at their job. Why? Because our behaviour at our work and our university reflects on our main boss and his teaching, our real Lord and Master and Saviour, Jesus. So these are the things you are to teach and insist on. The verses that we have been looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and the beginning of 6 tell us that what we do at work, what we do at school, what we do at uh, university matters. It matters for the reputation of Jesus. How we all live really matters for the reputation of Jesus. Don't ever take God's Generosity in your life for granted. Don't take God's patience in your life for blindness. We have a patient and generous God, slow to anger, abounding in love, wanting all to be saved. Similarly, don't take God's grace for granted. Jesus gave his life for all of us, Jesus gave his life. For you. So, what we do in our workplace doesn't (coughs) save you. It doesn't take you to heaven. It doesn't make you more spiritual. But it's important because we don't want to dirty Jesus' precious name. Don't sully the one who, in terrible nails, took on your sins. Don't take for granted the one who, whilst he was dying, called out for for your forgiveness. The one who one day will return to give everlasting love and peace and joy to the ones who trust in him. Remember how our church behaves reflects on our God. Let's not distract non-Christians From being able to meet the real Jesus through the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Let's pray. Father God, may we be a church that is a pillar and buttress of truth. May we care for our leadership. And may we be active in protecting your name, both with the purity of our leaders and our own purity. Help us to have a right family relationship with each other at church. And may we exhibit your love and patience with our earthly leaders and masters, caring for them, both financially and without respect. For the glory of your name, and so that no one will be distracted from seeing your beautiful Son and our dear Saviour and Lord Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, um, uh, we've touched on a variety of, of um, difficult themes and difficult things. I was just wondering if there are any quick questions or comments. well if there is anything uh, uh, and you do want to uh, speak about something or if something that I've I've talked about has brought up some pain or some hurt uh, please do come and see uh, Pastor Anders or or me or Roberts uh, and and chat about it afterwards thank you Andres if you would stay.